Welcome to Letters Read, the ongoing series of usually live events in which local performers interpret personal letters written by culturally vital individuals from various times and Louisiana communities. Curated and directed by me, stationer Nancy Sharon Collins. Antenna is our fiscal agent. This is our 14th event, originally scheduled March 26, 2020, the beginning of the COVID-19 outbreak in New Orleans. For now, this reading is a podcast. Dylan Hunter is the voice of our subject, Rebecca Hollingsworth is Anne, both self-recorded in the safety of their own home. Our MC is Frank Perez, President, LGBT Plus Archives Project of Louisiana. Frank knows Stewart well. He's writing Butler's biography, introduced me to him, and was recorded in a telephone conversation with Dylan. Dylan is also our audio engineer. History has its own manner of writing itself. The long-term effects of this pandemic have just begun. Let us turn away from the moment and focus on the letters of Stuart Butler. These are unique. Ordinarily, letters read subjects are long gone. Their letters residing in archives and special collections. Butler's archives fall into this category. His political activism is well documented in Louisiana research collection at Tulane University, New Orleans. Also, some of a more personal nature remain at his home. November 11, 2019. I was introduced to a wooden chest as big as me in his home, the Ferry Playhouse. Stewart's dear friend and caregiver, Bill Hagler, facilitated my work going through the letters contained in the chest and helped with questions. The letters dated back to the 1940s, to and from family and his ever-growing network of friends. There's a lengthy letter to his mom in which he meticulously outlines his strategy and tactics for winning his first political race. A second session, November 27th, revealed a pack of letters postmarked 1967 from Anne Garza. I found Anne's letters significant. They recall Stewart's first same-sex love, Greg Manella. A photograph of him hangs in a prominent place on Stewart's kitchen wall. Stewart allowed me to take the Garza letters to my studio for further study. December 9, I went back to the Fairy Playhouse, returned the letters, and clarified some information with Bill and Stewart. January 18 of this year, I returned. Bill was helping Stewart compose the annual Valentine's Day letter started in 1996 by he and his life partner, Alfred Doolittle. Bill thought I should read the complete Valentine's archive and helped photograph the ones for which there was only one copy and packed up the others when there were duplicates. The next time I visited Bill, Stewart was not home. Stewart, already in frail health, had been hospitalized. Approximately a week later, he came home and entered hospice. This reading provides a rare glimpse into Stewart's personal life before meeting Alfred before the upstairs lounge fire from which Alfred and he narrowly escaped, before he became a fierce political activist, and before a previous pandemic, HIV-AIDS took the lives of so many of his personal friends. Thursday, March 5th, 2020. Stuart Butler, a major force in Louisiana gay rights activism, died in his sleep at home. He was 89. Butler had a deep and abiding sense of social justice. This trait may be traced to his childhood, much of which was spent at the Federal Center in Carville, Louisiana, 
for people with leprosy, now known as Hansen's disease. But his father was a supplies officer and part-time pharmacist. Because of the historical stigma associated with this disease, Butler grew up within a marginalized community. He witnessed the harm that discrimination can create. He also grew up with an awareness of the sting of racism because his parents befriended an African-American woman and were taunted for that association. Born in Mobile, Alabama, Butler moved to New Orleans when his father got a job at the Public Health Service Hospital, which is now part of the Children's Hospital campus. He attended LSU but didn't graduate. Because he had held summer jobs in the western United States with the U.S. Forestry Service, he decided to head to that part of the country and wound up in Alaska, where he earned undergraduate degrees in geology and business administration at the University of Alaska. Butler's interest in politics started there when he was elected to the Territorial Senate, but the election was nullified when Alaska became a state in 1959. He stayed in Alaska for 10 years, where he was active in labor politics and married Sophie Ondala. Though the marriage ended in divorce, Stewart stayed in contact with his ex-wife, communicating often by post. After attending law school but not graduating, Butler moved back to New Orleans in 1964 and worked as a surveyor and waiter. The same year that the Civil Rights Act was passed, this is a landmark civil rights and labor law in the United States that outlaws discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, and national origin. It prohibits unequal application of voter registration requirements and racial segregation in schools, employment, and public accommodations. 1964 was also the year that Stuart Butler came out as gay. Act One. We begin 1967 with letters from Anne Garza and weave them into Alfred and Stewart's Valentine's Day letters. Anne's letters exhibit her concern for Stewart's relationship with Greg Manella. The Valentine's letters speak with Butler's mature voice. As Stewart explained to me, Greg was his first love. They were friends and occasionally had sex together. In Butler's words, Greg and he loved each other. However, the relationship was not to be. Greg was straight. It is my impression that Butler was intensely loyal to his friends. One example of this is the monthly check he continued to send to Greg's widow, a woman, to help with her care. August 27th, 1967, 10 a.m. My dearest friend, Stuart, just a note to let you know that I haven't forgotten you, but I have been very busy trying to get work. And after I found this job with Kelman Electric Company, I've been trying my best to make a good impression. You see, I won't know if I have this job for good until Friday morning. Right now, I'm on a trial basis. If he thinks I can do the work, I have it. I sure hope he likes my work. I just answer the phones and take messages and phone numbers. How have you been? I sure hope you and Greg are getting along just fine. Rudy and I are not getting any better. In fact, we're getting much worse. I just might be coming back to live forever. If I get this job, I am going to save every penny. And when I have a nice amount to live on for a while, I'll come and live. Stu, I am just sick 
of living like a pig. And that's just what he thinks I am. And that's the way he treats me. I hope you don't think I am one. I know you don't. Have you seen Roland lately? I sure hope he's doing just fine and he is staying out of trouble. <laughs> well, I'd better make this short because I'm using Mr. Kelvin's typewriter and also his time. I would hate for him to get mad at me. I'll write later, but I won't wait so long this time, I promise. Love forever and God be with you always. Anne. P.S. Please write soon as I love to hear from you. Thursday morning, August 31st, 1967. My dearest friend, Stu, I bet you thought I forgot all about you. Well, I didn't. And I know that I am almost a week late in answering your last letter. I have a good friend here in San Antonio, and he is gay and reminds me very much of yourself. Anyway... I had lunch with Larry last Monday, and I've been telling him about you, and I let him read your last letter, as I thought it was a guess. Larry about died laughing about the party. I was wrecked, because I never thought of you as going to a party like that. I always thought of you as a conservative type. I sure hope you enjoyed yourself, but I wish it worked on Greg. Baby, I hate to say this to you, but I'm going to anyway. Greg isn't going to change gay and just gay alone. He is going to end up marrying a real girl and telling you to go to the devil. <sighs> I sure hope I'm wrong, but just from your last letter and seeing the way he acted when I was there and the way he is now, I doubt very much he'll ever change. I talked to Larry about Greg to see if he had any ideas for you. And he said that if you don't start making him and talking to him, that he will never change his ways. It'll keep on hurting you and making fun of you in his own little ways. I hope that this letter is just between you and I and not nobody else. I don't want to start any trouble between you and Greg. Rudy and I are doing pretty good, but things could be a lot better. But you know how the straight life is. <laughs> Nothing but hell. The other day, Rudy asked me what I wanted for my birthday, and I told him either a hi-fi stereo set or a AM-FM Zenith portable radio. I hope he gets me my stereo set. I want one real bad. My birthday is September 10th, and Rudy has to start back at the fire station. I am hoping that he will get somebody to work for him so that he will spend my birthday with me. Well... I better go for now as I have one more letter to write before the mailman comes. Write me real soon. Love and kisses always. Annie. 
Outside of Anne's nuclear 1967 San Antonio orbit, the world had turned upside down. In New Orleans, District Attorney Jim Garrison prosecuted Clay Shaw on the charge that Shaw, a group of activists and elements of the CIA, conspired to assassinate President John F. Kennedy. Shaw was well known in New Orleans' highly secretive and extremely closeted gay society. In California, on the other hand, the sexual revolution, a.k.a. free love, in the form of flower power, was at its height. In Detroit, one of the worst racially motivated riots in the history of the United States began. A similar riot had also broken out that year in Newark. Back to Anne's prosaic endeavor to keep her job. Typed on the back of Kelman Electric Company stationery. October 4th. 1967, Wednesday, 10 a.m. My dearest friend, Stuart, I'm not busy at the minute, so I thought I'd drop you a few lines and let you know that I haven't forgotten you. How have you been feeling? Have you been working hard or working at it? I have been pretty good. You know how it is. Rudy is getting worse and worse about his drinking and cussing me out. I feel like I'm living in some kind of hell or something to that effect. I got a letter from Roland, and and first he said that he was in Houston. Then I get another letter a couple of days later saying that he's back in New Orleans staying with you. Damn it, I sure wish he would make his mind up what he's going to do. Sometimes he gets me so confused, I don't know which end is up or down. How is he doing? I hope he's just fine. I miss you and him so very much. Your friendships are so dear to me. I just wish I could see you more than just letters. How is Greg doing? Does he still work for the same people or did he quit? I hope he's doing just fine. Tell him hello for me and to be good. How are you two getting along? I hope it is like the last time you wrote me. I like to see my friends happy and in love. I just wish I could say the same for myself, but I can't. So, I still can wish, though. I'll know for sure Friday about this job, if the boss is going to keep me on for good or not. I sure wish he does. I like my job here. It's not hard, but it is steady. That's the most important thing. At least I have a couple of bucks in my pocket. Mr. Calvin is real nice, but... He is also hard, too, if you know what I mean. (laughs) Well, I'd better go for now, as Mr. Kelman will be back in a few minutes, and I don't want him to think that I spend all his time writing letters to my friends. Take care of yourself and be good. Tell everyone hello for me. God be with you always. Annie. Intermission. It's usual in our readings to take a brief pause. Breathe. Stretch your arms. Cast your eyes around the room and outside. Sigh. Now we continue. As recent as the 1970s, gay life was unmanageably different from now. 
paraphrasing Robert Fiesler's Tinderbox, the untold story of the upstairs lounge fire and the rise of gay liberation. Facing the threat of arrest by police, firings by employers, evictions, family rejection, and forced interventions by doctors and religious leaders, most homosexuals lived in a closet governed by the fear of exposure. At night, they sought love and companionship in underground societies, away and unseen. Mardi Gras, 1973. Stewart met Alfred Doolittle, a drop-dead brunette and eccentric trust fund baby. They immediately fell in love and spent the rest of Alfred's life together. A year later, Alfred had one of his feelings. As what happened three times in Stewart's life, emotion saved both of them. June 24th, 1973, the Upstairs Lounge, a gay bar slash church catering to the blue-collar queer community on the seedy side of Charters and Iberville Street in the French Quarter, goes up in flames, killing 32 and injuring an additional 15. Half an hour before, Alfred insisted Stewart and he leave, which they did, saving both of them. 1977, 2,500 to 3,000 locals protest. Anita Bryant's in-person performance in New Orleans. Bryant was a very popular American singer and highly vocal anti-gay spokesperson. This mobilized Stewart, Alfred, and other gay rights activists across the country, ultimately causing Bryant to lose her popularity, ruining her career. 1979, as Butler became increasingly active in causes related to the gay community, Doolittle urged him to stop working and devote his life to political activism. After all, Doolittle had money enough for both of them. June 5th, 1981, the U.S. Center for Disease Control publishes an article about a new, virulent, and deadly disease. The article describes cases of a rare lung infection, pneumocystis carni pneumonia, PCP. This marks the first official reporting of what will later become known as the AIDS-acquired immunodeficiency syndrome epidemic. In 1989, Butler was one of dozens arrested for a synod in the middle of Loyola Avenue protesting the lack of funding for AIDS research. In 1991, Butler was instrumental in the adoption of the New Orleans City Council's ordinance banning discrimination against gay men and lesbians. Though modest about his beliefs, Getting the law passed after two unsuccessful attempts was one of his proudest accomplishments. 2008, Alfred Doolittle, Stewart's life partner, dies. The Fairy Playhouse, 1308 Esplanade Avenue, New Orleans, Louisiana, 70116, December 1999. Dear, as you may recall, our holiday cards for the last two years featured a picture of the fairy playhouse all lighted up as a sort of giant gift box. Even though it is all lighted up again for the third year, Alfred and I decided that a change of pace was needed for our 1999 card, thus the picture from the past. How time flies. In 1998, as you are less likely to also know, our extended family was devastated by the loss of Fred, Freddie Lavray sometimes known as the Mad Russian Countess, on January 4th, Pierre-Peter René Delancey on February 4th, and Carlos Clifton Cliff Howard on July 27th. 
Peter's ashes, along with those of his and our cocker spaniel Adonai, who died in September of 1997, were scattered in a flower bed in our backyard during a celebration of life party in the spring. All three were precious to us, and their absence remains painful. 1998 also saw the loss of Simon, a beautiful stray black and white cat who graced our kitchen windowsill by coming to eat and sun. He was hit by a car. This year we've suffered more losses, but thankfully only two. On May 5th, our dear and close friend John Horn Foster took his own life as he'd planned to for years when his HIV status became hopeless. His life made of many years, Rich McGill was present. On his 57th birthday, November 8th, his ashes were inurned at a magnificent formal military ceremony in Arlington National Cemetery. On September 22nd, Gregory Manella succumbed to lung cancer. My meeting him when he was still 17 on a bus from San Francisco to New York in December 1963 was an event that altered my life forever. Connie, his wife of more than 10 years, is a wheelchair-bound woman who is brave and independent. She still calls me mom. But enough of death and destruction, gloom and doom. Through it all, our lives remain enriched and bright. For the fourth consecutive July, we headed for Alaska, but our departure was delayed for a day because I was detained at the New Orleans airport for 39 marijuana joints tucked away in a baggie in my sock. When I told the United Airlines clerk that we missed our flight due to a seizure, she said there'd be no charge to book us out on the next morning, and we managed to arrive in Anchorage in time for a planned get-together with friends to attend the Whale Fat Follies, a musical that matches anything here in New Orleans, at the Flyby Nightclub. After a few days in Anchorage, we drove the beautiful 360 or so miles up to Fairbanks, where we attended my fourth-in-a-row University of Alaska and Fairbanks alumni reunion. Every year, we meet one or two or more old friends and acquaintances I haven't seen for 35 or 40 years, even as we meet new friends. It's a grand and rewarding experience. On November 10th, I pled guilty to misdemeanor possession of marijuana, and after lecturing me on how I needed to settle down at my age, the judge sentenced me to six months of home incarceration, and I was thereupon outfitted with a monitoring anklet. Wow, a new life experience at age 69. Two days later, I get a call from a sheriff's deputy asking me to vote the next day for a bond proposition to increase the capacity of the local jail, that no increase in taxes was involved. I interrupted him to say that what he's not telling me is that if the bond proposition failed, there would be a decrease in taxes and that they already had more than 6,000 of the less than 500,000 New Orleans population locked up and that a big percentage of those were for non-violent drug offenses as a part of this ridiculous so-called war on drugs. The deputy says, yeah, that's a crock. We all know it's a big crock. Before he could go on with whatever might be left of his pitch, I say, and that's why I'm voting no tomorrow. He says, thank you very much. We understand. The bond proposition failed. As far as being homebound is concerned, I am allowed out once a week for church and groceries and I can go to the doctor, etc. And offsetting not being able to attend things I'd like to attend is the fact that I now have an ironclad excuse to not do things I'd just as soon not do anyway. As a bonus, maybe I'll get to some of those things that have been stacking up around the house for literally years. If you happen to not be in the know, 
The Fairy Playhouse's current resident players, in addition to Alfred and me, are Matilda, a gray tiger cat who came to us as a kitten at least 17 years ago, Tara, i.e. Earth, an eight-year-old mixed shepherd who has been in residence since 1993, and Putsy, i.e. Little Monkey, an English Springer Spaniel who we acquired as a puppy in late 1995 only to put him in exile for six to eight months in 1997 for being unmanageable. He returned much the better for his absence. I guess he figured the fairy playhouse wasn't so bad after all. In closing, Alfred and I want you to know how much we appreciate the part, large or small, you've played in enriching our lives over the years. We feel truly blessed. Alfred joins me in hoping the new year, the so-called millennium really isn't until next year, brings you peace, love, and joy. Stuart. Typed on the back of Kelman Electric Company stationery, in red, October 25th, 1967. Dearest Stuart, just a little note in big red letters to let you know that I am still alive and kicking. <laughs> How have you been getting along lately? I sure hope everything is going well for you and you are over the biggest part of the hurt. I'm doing pretty good. Rudy is still going out and drinking and staying out all night, but I am still working and not giving a damn what the hell he does or doesn't. Have you been to any of the bars lately? If so, how are all my other little friends? I sure hope they are doing well. What is the news there? I'm still a little homesick for New Orleans, but I guess I'll make it. One thing I do miss very much, and that is you and Roland. I wish I could see both of you real soon, but the only way I could do that is to come there. I know Roland is coming to San Antonio real soon, but I wish it was you with him. There isn't much here, but there are a bunch of real swell people. You see, Roland is barred from most of the places here, but when he comes back, if he behaves himself, he'll be able to go to the bars here. I sure hope he doesn't pull any of that crap he did before. He really didn't do anything bad, but you know how he is when he's real drunk. He put too much makeup on and act real silly, and the kids here did not like it. And he would carry on like Mad Sarah. I didn't mind, but people here is a lot more reserved than they are in New Orleans. They don't advertise as much. There's a few, but very little. One thing about it, we used to have a ball and a half, and we didn't care what people would say. Also, we would spend a hell of a lot more money than some of these reserved queens did. <laughs> oh well, that was the good old days, and I'll never forget them. Well, enough of that crap, and I'd better get back to work before I am out of a job and out in the street somewhere. <laughs> By the way, why the hell haven't you written me? Are you mad at me or something? Love forever and always. God be with you always. And Finale. There is a pink house on Esplanade Avenue covered in hearts. In 1979, this Creole cottage became the home of Stuart Butler and Alfred Doolittle. During the late 20th and early 21st century, many organizing meetings in the LGBT civil rights movement happened here. 
The garden behind contains the cremains of significant leaders in the struggle for equality, including Charlene Schneider, John Ognabini, Cliff Howard, and J.B. Hartner. The large red wooden hearts adorning the front are a tribute to Stuart and Alfred, who loved Valentine's Day and all that it meant. Valentine's Day was Alfred's favorite day of the year. Epilogue. Last year, while researching for this event, a young friend asked why I found the Garza letters significant. I said they resonate with me. I'm only a decade younger than Anne. Like her, I hung out with gay male friends in the bars that once served as the places where they could be open with one another. These were community gathering places where people, feeling outside of heteronormative values, were comfortable. I identify with Anne's struggles to find herself within the confines of a mid-20th century, then-normative relationship. Further, I'm drawn to her because she expresses elemental humanity, one person feeling for another in her concern for Stuart's well-being. Did you notice her last letter in which she recognized the hurt when Butler finally split with Greg? This, I feel, is the very humanity Stuart Butler was about. At heart, Butler was a high-functioning political animal. He championed civil rights and was instrumental in changing Orleans Parish law to allow legal protection for all gays and strategically enabled many civil rights movements to come. Throughout, he remained humble, a quality I personally admire. When recognized for achievements or given accolades, he was dismissive. Once, Hagler made a crown and placed it on Stuart's head. Stuart was fond of funny hats, but never wore that crown again. When finally Bill asked why he never wore it, Butler explained, because I am not a king. Last year, the House of Representatives passed the Equality Act, a sweeping bill that would prohibit anti-LGBTQ discrimination in all aspects of public and commercial life without any religious exemptions. While the bill has basically no chance of gaining traction in the Senate, If Democrats sweep Congress this year, it will likely be high on the party's priority list from the Atlantic, August 2019. Let us hope that come fall, our population will reflect a healthy political climate in which all equality presides. Thanks go to our live event host, preempted by this pandemic, Frenchman Art and Book, to Dancing Grounds from whom we would have borrowed chairs. Our live audio engineer was to be Steve Check, Sonic Canvas Studio. Thank Dylan and Rebecca. Thank you, Frank Perez, Bill Hagler, John McGill, and Robert Fiesler for context. Thank you, Letters Read Narrative and Storytelling Advisors, Ted Cotton and Cassie Prine. Support for the 2020 programming season is provided by Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities, the LGBT Plus Archives Project of Louisiana, Corner Foundation, and Reba Judith Sandler Foundation. Additional support is from private individuals to whom we are enormously grateful. Listen to anchor.fm backslash letters dash read for other Letters Read podcasts. Check in often to lettersread.net for the next event. Thank you for listening.